It's Monday, February 25th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 197 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Talk. Talk between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is bass player, producer, engineer, Kato Hideki. Let's listen. Kato's the man, and I'm glad to have him on the show today. Today on the show, Kato Hideki. Before we get into it, I want to ask a favor of you guys. If you're enjoying this show, please rate, review, and subscribe to it in iTunes. Podcasts are still fundamentally a uh, word-of-mouth enterprise, and believe it or not, it really helps. It helps to give the show more visibility. So if you got a minute and you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. If you're really, really enjoying the show and uh, you want to show some appreciation financially, go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Become a monthly donor, and uh, it's a huge help. Okay, that's it. Today on the show, Kato Hideki. Do you guys know Kato? He was born and raised in Nagoya, Japan. He moved to Tokyo as a, as a young man to, to study, where he met Otomo Yoshihide and uh, was an original member of the band Ground Zero. Ground Zero, for me, is a band that uh, was one of the first kind of extreme improvised bands I ever got into uh, and totally changed the way that I, that I think about music. Ground Zero is a hugely important band for me. He's been in New York since 1992 and has really played a major role in a lot of important music. One of my favorite uh, records to come from, from that period of time in the mid-90s when things were still happening at the Knitting Factory was this trio record that Avon Kang made uh, called Dying Ground that was with G. Calvin Weston on drums and Kato on bass. Again, seminal, aggressive, uh, improvised music. Kato has led a number of his own projects, including Death Ambient, his trio with Fred Frith and, and Ikue Mori. He's put out a number of solo records. Uh, he does a broad range of things, and today's conversation really covers a lot of ground. Kato is an absolutely sweet guy, as well as a tremendous musician, and uh, I, I'm excited for you guys to hear today's show. <clears throat> I'm going to keep this a little bit short. Uh, my throat is in kind of bad shape. If you want to find out more about Kato Hideki, go to katohideki.com. That's K-A-T-O. H-I-D-E-K-I dot com. Katohideki dot com. Check out all of his projects. Uh, it's all worth checking out. And that's it. Here's my conversation with Kato Hideki. Since a teenager, uh-huh. I've had some sort of makeshift right. recording studio right, set up, right, right, right. Um, and I've never had—yeah, uh, I've never had neighbors <clears throat> complain to me. 
ever. Because you're nice or you're quiet. I think they're scared. <laughs> I think they hear sounds coming and they, they they're like, well, it's oh, not it's not music. But you you scared them off. I don't. Know. I, 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 I have I, to I, assume. I can't talk to that guy. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> they couldn't talk to you. I don't know. I mean, I'm uh, <clears throat> you know mostly friendly, but I, I can see that. But if you, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of the music that like I make or pe- people we know make, right? You forget that if you just for some people if they just heard that as like an ambient sound through the wall, yeah, they might not say, "Oh, those cats are jamming." Like, I think what happens is that people, you know, people hear something that you, if you sound like you're having fun, some people get upset. <laughs> I mean, if you if you if you're generating some kind of sound that is kind of downer, uh-huh. why bother? I mean, you know what? It's funny that you say that because I actually just remembered I did have a neighbor complain once when I lived across the street. And it was when we just moved in. We were having some people over. And the music we were listening to, I don't even remember what it was. It was like Prince or something. It was something oh, yeah. that is like universally loved by all. Right, right, right. They complained about that. But also beat, you know. Yeah. If somebody is sleeping and if you're hearing this you know, this was like five in the thing. Oh, well, look, some people don't like music, you know, like, uh, I think I'm becoming one of them. We have to uh, accept that fact. That... But do you, um, do you get irritable when you hear like, uh, people having fun, like a party scene through a wall? My building is pretty quiet. Also, the location is pretty unique because we don't share walls. At least my studio does, you know. Uh, You've got the one, full floor? One side is, you know, stick to the other building. Mm-hmm. But the other side is facing towards Manhattan, and the other side is open. Right. Also, it's nice in that sense, but then it gets really windy and cold and uh-huh. hot. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but that was the sort of condition that we were looking for. You know, we don't want to hear people's... Right. We used to you specifically live. wanted no right. right on top floor, some you know uh, outdoor space, and um, because we used to live in East Village and we could hear everything. Yeah, you know that you know oh, okay, next guy's cheating on his girlfriend. <laughs> I mean everything yeah. like it, it's yeah. like a what is it? Uh, not tenements. Only, not only three hundred sixty degrees, but up and down too. Like you, you can know. Hear, it's funny as you know the East Village and Lower East Side has been getting so like rapidly gentrified. Right. I wonder. I don't think a lot of the people that are coming in realize that these buildings, these tenement buildings, were designed with absolutely no respect for the people that were going to live there. It's such a bad construction. Right? Yeah, it's about jamming as many poor immigrants right, 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 as possible in. And the first place we were, um, we moved in was Seventh um, Street between First and Second. Uh huh. And there was still old, you know, bathroom in the in hallway, the kitchen, right? Everybody shared. I mean, yeah. we had, oh, in the hallway, we had a separate, you know, our own bathroom situation, but old one was in the hallway. Yeah, that's how they lived. Yeah. Uh, what was the name of the book? Low Life or something. Yeah, I got like a copy that? of it right over there by Luxanti. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's like, like the classic one that yeah. came out in nineties. But anyway, so yeah, we've been through that, and uh, now you know, uh, Brooklyn is kind of. New, n- not new, but you know, the right. place that. But so wait, you were just saying, used sec- to be a you're, that you're uh, growing up in Japan, you're used to small spaces. My first apartment when I, you know, uh, 
Well, you're from, you grew up in Nagoya, right? Yeah. Then I moved to Tokyo when I, you know, went to school. Yeah. And uh, I learned. Uh, I was studying writing, creative writing, and stuff. But anyways, the first apartment I moved in was literally. Actually, you can touch the ceiling. Really? <laughs> it's like submarine. <laughs> Right, uh, and the whole place was probably the size of my mixing room, which is what like bigger than this the room we're sitting. Uh, Maybe twice, <laughs> and we have you know we have we use futon in the states. People call futon whatever. It's kind of, still kind of a you know bed, right? Right. We actually fold the thing, and we you can put it in a shelf, right? Because there's no room. Right. So every night you unfold it. Right. Every right. morning it, you fold it. It's pretty back. efficient if you have no room. It's very efficient. And my my kitchen was literally like, I don't know, two feet by one yeah. foot. There's one, you know, stove and one sink, which was like yeah, tiny thing. But everything was in there: storage space, kitchen. But then, <laughs> then I mean, all in, including a door space. That was like I, 10 I, by I feel 10. like nowadays. Like something like that makes a lot more sense if you, like for people like us that like books and records and, and films and stuff, nowadays you can have an iPad and have a completely exhaustive library of music, film, books. True. Yeah. But back then, like how do you decide what to keep in the apartment and what not to keep? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think that back then I was more of a minimalist. Yeah. Just to make sound good, I didn't have anything. That's that's what it was. But was now, it a choice? now I, you know, oh, you should check it out. But um, I, um, I always had studio. Actually, the way I started uh, composing music, you know, I was doing my thing too. But I was hired as a composer for a music library company, right? So I needed setup like back. Wait, in, you were studying creative writing? Yeah. And I was doing a lot of stuff, writing and, you know, visual arts and doing music stuff. All at the same time? Yeah, I was very, you know, kind of ambitious, curious, little, you know, young kid. Bass was the first instrument? Bass, well, the first instrument was uh, actually piano. Mm. Then picked up guitar and then find, uh, I found a bass guitar in garbage can. In a garbage can? Yeah, it, I think, you know, I can say a lot of things happened to me is completely random. Sure. Right, being here is kind of like accident. Okay. Many in many ways. Yeah, yeah we'll get to that. Uh, and I met actually Otomo. Otomo Yoshida. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in school, and he he was going to another school, but he used to come around to a music club. Kind of. He's from city. Fukushima. Or? He grew up. He, I think he was born in Tokyo, moved to Fukushima, you know, spent okay. a little time there. Okay. Uh, but anyways, he, you know, we were in Tokyo. And back then, I mean, what was Tokyo like? This, this is what the mid '80s we're talking. Yeah, early mid '80s. Yeah. Yeah. And what was what was the the scene like for you guys in Tokyo and the in that time? I wasn't really aware of it. Because, you know, we were still figuring out what we wanted to do. We were yeah. like twenty, you know, years old, right? And Autumn had a little mixer, homemade mixer, and using cassette tapes and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so this is way back when we started working really together was early nineties with Ground Zero. That was ninety or ninety one. I yeah. can't remember. Also, but was that the first project you guys had worked on together? Well, I invited him to my project, and uh, then I, you know, basically we were working for each other. Right. So but then, uh, then that was a time, you know, 
Zone was in, in Tokyo. He was spending a lot of time in Tokyo. Right. Half, I, I don't know how. Half you know, a year or something. Kind of like that. Yeah. A lot of time, right? So that was a very、uh, different time. If I think about it, things like that. Different in, in, from what? Different? I guess that was a, a narrow window of time that I could actually escape Japan. <laughs> Were you tr- were you Because there was an exchange between, you know, especially John was booking gigs in Tokyo. I mean, I have to imagine when John first came to Tokyo, he, people knew who he was. It was exciting to have him there. Right. And、uh, he also brought people from New York. Yeah. Right. And I saw Naked City and other pieces. I remember he was doing some game piece with Anton Fier, another、mm-hmm. Japanese guy. Uh, so, you know, a lot of activities back then between, you know, New York and Tokyo.、Mm-hmm. And then、uh, I was on a record for、uh, Koichi Makigami, which、right. was produced by John. Right. right? And that but, was. But, but let's, let's, let's go back a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So,、uh, Nagoya is one of the biggest cities in Japan, right? Like third or fourth biggest city? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And it, so it's a, it's a big <clears throat> city. But was it, I mean, you were born what, 60, 62. Was Nagoya, did it get severely damaged in World、During、War II? During the war, yeah. yeah.、Uh, a lot of things got, you know, burnt down. Right. So, based kind of like a, you know, somewhere in Germany. Right. Like everything built new, right? So, when you were a kid, everything was still being built or it was. I lived in the city, but it's sort of like a suburban, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, we lived in a project building and.、Uh, Nothing cultural, like really artificially built whole town. Yeah. Right?、Uh, so, but this is a thing, sort of, my ex- experience in music was really coming from recordings. How, how are you hearing that stuff?、Uh, well, that's another challenge because <laughs> my family was pretty poor. And、uh, vinyl was really expensive. Yeah. Right? 2,500 yen in the 70s. For a record. Yeah, that's like a 25 bucks now. It's a lot of money. Yeah, so I save up whatever money. you know, I, I was working for my dad, and he, he was a mechanical engineer, right? So there's a main you know, piece, and、mm-hmm. you, you have to come up with XYZ mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, drafting stuff. So I was helping him, and he would pay me whatever. and... Save up some money. And, and were they encouraging of, of exploring music? Were they fans of music? Oh, exactly. Actually,、uh, it's a complex situation <laughs> that I'm realizing now between my parents. My dad is from really, you know,、uh, it's, it's something to do with、uh, class system in、uh-huh. Japan. Although it's not really clear, we had this system. Uh, let's see, I'm not really good at Japanese history, but like a, somewhere like a 400 years ago,、uh-huh. uh, when Tokugawa you know, soldiers, samurai people, took over the control,、uh, they came up with this. I could be wrong, but, anyways, the, this class system was the top, was of course samurai, right?、Mm-hmm. The next one down was farmers,、mm-hmm. because they would offer the. Basically, they pay, paid the tax with rice, right. not cash. Uh, then uh, mo- uh, uh, technicians, right? Industrial people.、Uh-huh. And the bottom was merchants. Although merchants. it's funny because、yeah. they had money, but class wise, they were the lowest. Yeah. And my parents are from you know, farmers'、oh. you know,、uh, area, but my mom's side was wealthy, you know, basically landlord. They owned the whole. 
right. village, right? Like, right, right, right. Until they lost everything. So that's the sad part. Lost everything in... They kept their house. That was the only thing. But they lost everything to... To, uh, well, my great-grandfather got cheated by okay. his friend. And, you know, I see. He was basically not right. very smart. Right, 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 right. But it wasn't like an outside... Uh... Yeah. And then after the World War uh, Two, uh, you know, Americans came in and they changed the system. So landlords, you know, had to give up some, you know... Yeah. Farmland, and which happened, and uh, so my my mom's side is basically kind of like a falling down from you know upper upper class, yeah, middle class or whatever. Right. And my dad's side was like struggling to just survive. Right. So somewhere in the middle is where they found right. each so other. They, well, now um, they got married by arrangement, huh. which is kind of you know old stuff, right? So they they. They didn't really get along. They, I now I understood they had a resentment. Are they still alive? Uh, my dad's gone, so you know, yeah. fight is over. <laughs> fight is over. <laughs> they stayed married all the way up to the end. Yeah, but they should have, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I had a really miserable, you know, childhood, and I got very sick, and I almost died. From which, uh, from basically what happened was I had a severe stomach ache. And I think somebody explained to me that I had a really strong immune system, so it, I didn't. It didn't get worse, but I, you know, my body was fighting up you know, yeah. all the time. So I was in pain for maybe five years, four or five oh years. My God. Right? Then finally, I felt something burst. Appendix. Yeah. So that was like a really bad way. You know, I, I didn't know what happened, but I went to emergency room and the first guy said no nothing's wrong with you and i was like dude no just listen to me give me another guy then finally had you know doctor came out and he said oh let me check check you out and the body was like wood right my stomach was really hardened and he said oh yeah we have to treat you in half hour otherwise you're not gonna make it and I, i was like how old were you 19. Oh my God, that's, that's, ugh. So I didn't have any fun, right? So music was my friend. <laughs> right. So I was, you know, uh, isolated. And what was the music at, uh, that really grabbed you initially? Well, usually pop music, but two records that I still have. One was, well, I said it from like Beatles, you know, sure. usual <laughs> Stones or whatever that was available. Uh, then I... We had a one-use record store where I could go. You know, I took a bus, and one day I found uh, Yoko Ono's first solo record, which is like a you know, twin record yeah. to Lennon's first one. Yeah. Same people, right? Like, okay, I I figure out. Look at the name and John Lennon. You know, I know who this guy. You know is. this guy. <laughs> okay, Ringo is playing drums. Great, and I didn't know who was the bass player, Klaus Bormann, uh-huh. one of my favorite guys. And Yoko is doing her thing. And you were, you knew Yoko Ono as an artist or as the wife of John Lennon, or I think I didn't know anything back then. You, but you no, saw a Japanese name. Yeah, if I could go to bookstore and read some magazines, but nobody cared about Yoko Ono in Japan. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a right back then. Sure. You know, uh, she was known as the wife of John Lennon. Right. Uh, but anyways, I didn't know anything about it. Except this was, you know, half of the band was Beatles, mm-hmm. right? So I grabbed that piece and uh, 
it totally sort of blew my brain yeah. out because it, the first track was still kind of funky. Thing. You're talking about Double Fantasy. No, 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 no. I, what is the title of this thing? I think Plastic Ono Band. Oh, Plastic Ono Band. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Right. And the side A is, Lennon is just like a ripping, you know, totally improvised, weird sounding guitar. And Ringo is doing some groove. Yeah, he's right. And really good rhythm section going on. But then, you know, she's screaming, uh, you know. Then side B, you should check it, check it out on YouTube. I'm sure it's on. Uh huh. Yeah. Side B was some sort of tape collage piece, something she was singing, like a paper or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, anyway, that was my first introduction to tape music, right? Uh huh. Music, concrete, or whatever. Right. That's, you know, her idea was. Then the last track was All Nat and I think Ed Blackwell, maybe Charlie Hayden playing bass, Don Cherry is doing, you know. That's, that's the quartet. And Yoko is scream, you know, right. not just screaming, but this was basically mimicking the organism, right? And yeah. I was like a 12 something. Okay, okay. Right? And, and she finally, you know, she's calling, oh, John, not yet, and all that stuff. And then she finally came and that's when she screams. And I was totally frightened by it. Frightened, this. yeah. Right? Yeah. So totally, did I like it? I don't know. But <laughs> I had, because I didn't have that many records, I listened to this thing over and over. Yeah. Right? And sonically, that was interesting. So that, that you know, basically got stuck in my brain. Another record that I grabbed was Muddy Waters. Oh, the uh, best. Best of Muddy Waters from 1940s through, I guess, 50s. This was British press, you know, cheapy, really thin vinyl, but sounded really good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, you know, thickness doesn't really uh, affect on the sound. But anyways... Um, uh, were you listening to any Japanese music, or were you just checking out the stuff coming from America? Mostly, you know... UK, yeah. you know, America, Japanese stuff. I don't know. My experience in that is kind of, a, again, random. Mm. You hear, you know, traditional Japanese stuff, like a gagaku music. Right. And I actually wanted to join the ensemble when I was a teenager. And I actually applied it when I turned 20. And they said, you're too old. <laughs> okay. There was, you know, they don't do that often. Right. You know, it's really kind of closed society. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Strict, you know, to train, you know, people. But anyways, uh, so that, you know, random stuff I was listening, you know. Yeah. TV or radio. And it's, you know, it's when you only have access to a handful of things. In my experience, you end up studying and absorbing every single detail of it. Right. Like it really, it's not like now where like I've already listened today to like 10 different artists, you yeah. know, just this morning by having like my right, iTunes right, right, on right. shuffle for an yeah, hour yeah, and yeah. a half, you know, like, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that would, going back to the time, like I, you know, like, like what you're describing, you might listen to the same record a hundred times. Well, probably. Yeah. I was very careful, you know, really treated the record well. Sure. But that was what was available back then yeah. to me you know yeah. then Muddy Waters record I was kind of shocked by the sound quality actually some of the you know tracks were really hi-fi yeah some of them totally distorted right and I, I didn't understand what was going on why <laughs> I didn't know what distortion was did you like it 
again, sort of like a reaction to Yoko's record.、Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to think of it, but、mm-hmm. I was digging, right? I, I was at least going back and something, you know. It was、uh, compelling, yeah. Yeah, it was totally compelling sonically. So, without really seeing that many live performances, but really connecting to recordings really affected me.、Mm-hmm. And still, I'm like that. I'm really a studio guy. Yeah, me、you、too. Know,、uh, like、the way things sound is、right. just as important as what they're saying. Right. Me. I mean, criticism is, you know, oh, you, we shouldn't be too precious about, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can perform, yes, but you, I cannot deliver certain sound. Yeah. A, I can't play, you know, more than one instrument at a time. Although I do, you know, play、mm-hmm. almost everything except what you do. Wood, yeah, know, woodwinds, yeah. I, I, don't, I used to try French horn, trombone, but it gave、yeah. me a headache. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Just <laughs> not for me. Just better ask some professional people. <laughs> but, anyways,、uh, so that's the background and you know, isolation and、uh, sort of intense connection to recordings.、Mm. Kind of, you know, that's my.、Uh, Foundation. Foundation. And then you moved to Tokyo for university. Right, right, right. 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 You know, escaped from my parents, basically, <laughs> as soon as possible. What, so, as far as creative writing goes,、uh, who are the authors that were really、uh, striking a chord? Well, actually, the, that, I took that you know, course because I could take everything, like, a, you, know, des- you know, like art class, you know, sort of. I was just a slacker. Yeah. But I liked to, you know, I, I was doing, working on my、um, <clears throat> sort of, I was writing. Really abstract poetry.、Uh-huh. My professor said, I don't understand what you're doing, but I like your you know, <laughs> ambitious attitude. That's the you best、know? thing you could hear in that situation. Oh, really? Well, just it's that it's supportive, <laughs> not like, what are you doing? Right, crap, right, 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 right. Because, you know,、uh, it's, I don't know if it was good enough or what, but that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But that is still helping me to con- sort of you know, organizing my thoughts, ideas. So I s- tend to. S- Make music that's coming from outside of music.、Uh-huh. A lot of people, you know, I have a lot of friends who are told, really knowledgeable about music, right? You know, like an encyclopedia type.、They、you mean、um, they know everything about music? About, about like,、uh, like how music works or the history of music? Or, everything. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, again, sort of my knowledge is patchy in a way. Mine too. I'm, I'm learning,、mm-hmm. but I come up with i d e a of. That is not coming from music first, then I apply to it.、Mm-hmm. Right. So, so uh, uh, another thing that after I moved to Tokyo, I, you know, I finished my school. Then I was hired by this company. You know, they were basically hiring a bunch of composers. And we are ho- one of the ho- house composers, and they were licensing、uh, music. Okay. So that、uh, sort of Was a training process for me to be,、uh, you have to be versatile, right? If you have to write music for a sports program, you, you would do it.、Uh, sonically, you know, stylistically. And they usually gave me、uh, pretty clear instruction, like structures should be this, you know, A, B, C,、mm-hmm. whatever. So I got used to this、um, kind of walk. And okay, do you want disco? You know, you got it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. In many ways, meaningless. But 
after I did that, maybe not close to 10 years, actually. 10 years you did that? Close to, maybe seven years. I, I can't remember exactly. But so you kind of start thinking, like, what am I doing here? You, know? <laughs> you were not uh, so moved by it? No, no, it was a good gig to yeah. make a living. I, you know, I can sit around in my studio and, you know, I can survive, right? Yeah. So I was very lucky in that regard. But then I met Otomo and people like, you know, sort of avant-garde people. I came into that by uh, another accident. Yeah. Well, how, what was that accident? Well, I, I met Otomo. That was a big accident. <laughs> the accident? <laughs> right? I, I didn't, I didn't read, I mean, he's like a real music nut, right? He yeah, I've talked, loved avant-garde stuff. Yeah, he's also, I think he's got that encyclopedic brain. That too, but I'm exactly opposite. You know, right. I'm like uh, I walk with people, you know, because I met them. Sure. You know, so they happen to be avant-garde musicians. So was Ultimo the first? Uh, did Did you guys play together initially? Improvisation. Mostly, even like a Ground Zero first, you know, Ground Zero was improvised. Yeah. You know, he gathered people, and John was part of it. Also, Tony Buck. Yeah, from the uh, next. Yeah, yeah. He was part of it, and we he had a band with me and Otomo and Michael Sheridan, who is a guitar player from mm. uh, Melbourne. But anyways, so that was the time. You know, we had different configuration, and I was working with Tenko. Yeah, uh, and Tenko used to be with Fred Frith. Uh -huh. right? So I met Fred in Japan, and then later on I walked with him. You yeah, know, Death Ambient. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, I wasn't really uh, searching. F you know, I, I I wasn't really uh, following. You know what was going on. I, I saw gigs and okay, that's interesting. Then I got into it, and I came here, and you know, that random factor got even more so expanded. So what was that bridge? Like uh, Zorn had come to Japan. Right. Is that was that the uh, initial bridge for you coming here? Well, uh, I think uh, two things. One is we. I got married to American. Oh, my wife Anita, uh -huh. who you know she lived there for several years, so she speaks Japanese too. And we got married in Tokyo, and then somebody suggested me uh, that I should get a green card, and I I had no idea. Like, okay, sounds good. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, it was it's much easier. Very easy. Yeah. I applied, and within two months, I had an interview, and I paid something like fifty bucks or something <laughs> like that, right? And there was a, you know, there was a counter, you know, and this appointment interview. Uh, questions were like a kind of ridiculous questions. Are you a member of Nazi Party or are you a communist? You know, right. stuff like that. And I'm, okay, no. <laughs> Right, right. Then, well, I mean, now it's probably. Are you a member of the Taliban or ISIS? Is probably it is a possibility. Yeah, but back then it wasn't. You know, right. Uh, it totally. You know, pre nine eleven era yeah. too. So I married her, and I was able to be here. Right, At and that was your first time coming to the United States. I came to New. Uh, the first visit was in eighty nine. I was huh. touring with. Uh, Iranian musician who lived in Japan, and he, you know, he had friends in San Francisco, also in New York. So I was, you know, staying with a friend of mine here. Then went to Europe. Then you know, wall came down. 
Yeah. I was there in Berlin. You were in Berlin when that happened? Just after that. We, I was in... Um, that was like 89. 89, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, people from East came in and, you know, they were buying everything. Like milk and stuff was, you know, they, you had to grab it as soon as possible because people came in with a car. I don't know the name of the, uh-huh. you know, car. But anyways, that was... must have been an like, exciting time to be there. It changed. I uh, returned to Europe in 90, but somehow tension went away. Yeah. Something changed. Like a mood yeah. changed. In a way, I kind of liked the tense vibe. Uh-huh. Although it wasn't, uh, I don't think it was a good thing. But then later on, it kind of, Europe became more like uh, here. Yeah. It's less Similar. and less interesting every time you, know, you go. You know, kind of like if you go to Poland, it looks like Jersey or something. You know? I've been going something to Poland like that. for, that's where my family comes from. Oh, and I've been going there for many, many years. And it is so different every time I go. Right. And it is, Lu- Warsaw in particular. Right. You know, it's it's a shopping mall now. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, where were we? Uh, you, so so you, you, you marry your wife. Oh, that's get right. Get the green yeah. card. Yes, and then, you know, uh, Otomo uh, was also part of this Makigami session. I mean, Makigami is one of the most, in my opinion, just singular musicians around. Like, you know, like there's just no one like Makigami. True. And he does his, you know, solo walk as well as Hikashu is his band. Yeah. I was subbing uh, for uh, the band member who lived in Germany for a while. So I was just subbing, you know, I was a sub guy for his band for a while. Then, you know, he decided to do his cover record in New York City and John, you know... John Zorn produced it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the early, you know, producing work uh-huh. by John. Maybe 90, 91, I can't so, remember. So he brought you guys <clears throat> to New York to do the record. Yeah, and then they were able to hire... I think I could be wrong, but like a two hundred musicians. What you know, like they had budget. Right, right, clearly. Like the last hala of you know, Japanese economy, and then shortly after that, economy crashed. So, you know, really narrow window of time. Yeah. And then the first track I recorded was with Rebo, and none of us consoles and Otomo. Right. I was wait like, you Mark Rebo <clears throat> Otomo. Yeah, and we then Makigami. And Makigami. Course. So that was it's a pretty track. amazing band. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, I was really, uh, I knew, you know, their work. But playing with them is completely different, right? Mm. And I was kind of sort of overwhelmed by them. Mark it, well, showed me how to mix your sound, right? Of course, engineer was mixing, but mm. he knows, he's a master of mixing the yeah. sound into the whole Oh yeah, situation, right? And Nana was like, he, I think he was totally stoned out of his mind. Who was Nana Bascon? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But he had he he brought you know Sudo the big drum. You know, you know, he most of the times he was just doing very simple stuff, but 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 them, and the tension and release between you know downbeat and backbeat was like. The backbeat was really laid back, and mm. downbeat was so solid. So mm. tension and release, but this sort of two poles going back and forth, and he's just there. 
And that was like completely shocked to me. Revelation. Like, Whoa. Yeah. You know, uh, Japanese musicians tend to play everything either as written or kind of tight. You know? Yeah. But what I figured out was, oh, okay, this is like a conversation. They're talking to you. you know? Yeah. So that was a big lesson. And uh, I'm more comfortable in that, you know, bunch. And that was really the first time you experienced that as a player? I think Ultima already knew. Sure. You know, naturally knew. So we, we, would, we were doing that stuff. But then, you know, playing with other people, not always like that. Right. Uh, so uh, that was the beginning. And actually, I think we went back to Japan. And then uh, that was the time just before the you know economy went down. And all sorts of constructions. And also, you know, if you're a uh, known Japanese person, discrimination is an issue. Mm -hmm. We wanted to find some place. We couldn't find it. You know, they, they just... Wait, wait, discrimination? <clears throat> against my wife, because she's white. Gaijin. She, she spoke Japanese, but that didn't really... That doesn't... I've heard about that. I've never, you know, I've never been to Japan, but I've heard, you know, from, from many people about this, this uh, culture being prohibitive for outsiders. I think it's changing now because they need more foreigners to do certain work that they don't want to do, or they're they basically running out of manpower, right? So they're accepting more, you know, foreigners to come in and right. do work. But uh, but at that time, what would that discrimination towards your wife and you have looked like? Basically, we couldn't uh, rent an apartment. Really? Well, we, we, we lived in my apartment. She, you know, she moved in with me. So that was okay, but we wanted to move to a smaller place. Well, at some point, we were thinking of maybe rent a, you know, sublet someplace here and go back to there. Yeah. But... You know, realtors said, oh, that one's gone. Oh, that one's gone. And we, we were like, okay. It just became very This clear. is what it is. You know, oh, this God. Is, I mean, you could ask, you know, John about it. No, I've heard he, him talk about that stuff. You know, he had experience and it, you hit the wall. And that's another reason that I moved here. Because if you have a problem in Japan, uh, there is no solution. How do you mean? Because they don't address the problem. <laughs> That's a cultural... You can't even start the argument, right? Just put the lid on stinky stuff. Right? Yeah. Let's not talk about it, okay? Just be quiet. That's the message. You know, I've always wondered what it's like in certain areas. Like, uh, to me, it seems like Okinawa is like, uh, like a vacation resort now. Also, that's a completely different, you know, but, Okinawa wasn't Japan for a long time. But historically, you know, that is the site of like perhaps the bloodiest battle in all of World War II. And right. is that, are the people there, are, is there like a, a recognition of that part of history? Or is it like you're saying sort of... I can't really speak for them or right. you know, I am not really, right. uh, familiar with that. But uh, in general, Japanese culture, you know, is very oppressive. Yeah. Also, they don't accept difference, right? So I was basically... Uh, even by some of the avant-garde musicians, I was told that I wasn't fitting in. I, somebody said, you're alien, you know, you're uh, uh, not Japanese. You're not Japanese? Yeah, I mean, technically I'm Japanese, but I'm not really f fitting in there, obviously, right? So coming from there to here, I mean, over here it's like everybody's... Doing their own thing. 
everything is on the table. Yeah. If you take, you don't, I know you don't want to take subway, but if you take subway, <laughs> uh, people start talking to you and you know everything about this dude. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. Opposite. Well, New York in particular. New York, like right. people in New York speak their mind. And when I go outside <clears> of New York, I have to sort of like dial, I forget that outside of New York, and I'm talking in the United States. Like West Coast style is different. West Coast, down south, like you kind of got to chill that out a little bit. You can come across as aggressive and unpleasant very easily right. if you don't sort of like become self-aware. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was extreme difference, right? And then the random uh, factor increased because you meet, well, maybe not now. I don't know. Maybe you know better uh, about the situation right now, but... Back in the 90s, a lot of people lived in East Village, mm -hmm. right? So I would see, you know, Mark and John and, you know, other people, Ikue. And uh, now everything is so scattered. Everything's spread out now. Right, spread out. And But back then, you know. The village was, was really a village. Yes, and there was a knitting factory, you know. On Houston. Uh, right, the original one. Uh, although people complained about, you know, the management. People complained about everything. But... Uh, that was a place for me to meet a lot of people. And yeah. I met Chris Cochran, you know him, mm -hmm. and uh, Zeno, and, you know. So you moved here in 91, is that right? 90, officially, I moved in 92. 92. So the Knitting Factory on Houston Street would have been really at its peak, like in terms of like the amount of shows that were happening, the kind of people that were playing there, and Plus, the audience. Samra, you know. Right. James Blood Ulmer. Right. Everybody played. Yeah, Zorn was doing his big birthday month. Yeah, and... I was part of the 40th. Yeah. So that must have been... 93. 93, yeah. Right. So oh. you, immediately you, you found yourself immersed in this community of people? Yeah, again, it just happened. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I felt like I was... I don't know if I felt a part of it, I, but I was in the middle of it, right? Mm. And uh, went on from there and, you know... Uh, I think Mark helped me out and he recommended me to different projects. And the, one of them was Chris, you know, had a band with Zena called No Safety. Yeah, so, so I, you joined No Safety? I toured with them. The last tour, I played guitar for three weeks. And then basically I had to leave uh, and had to leave. So I stopped playing bass in the middle of the tour. You had to leave? <clears throat> she had, you know, she had a uh, family situation. Okay. So she had to, I you see. know... Uh, Take care of that. So we knew, you know, not like she split in, right. in, out of nowhere. She, we, I, I knew what was going to happen. But then who else? Uh, then I met John King. Do you mm -hmm. know John? Of course, yeah. Actually, I met John in Japan. Uh, so we came across, you know, and we actually made a recording. Uh, we still work together. Uh, we have a... We started out this project called Amorphous. Amorphous. Yeah, uh, electronic <clears throat> stuff. And then we started inviting. This is a sort of a question. Well, I was, I'm like a little kid. Still, I am. Why do we perform? Right? Why, why do we perform in front of people? Uh -huh. Usually, not always, but, you know, you let's say you're performing and I'm, you know, listening. Right. Right. This sort of face-to-face -face yeah. situation made me wonder why, why, why this has to be like this. It, it, have you ever thought of that? I'm not performing at all right now. Oh, okay. I have like a lot of stuff I'm dealing with, but I haven't played a concert 
since oh, October. Okay. And I haven't played in New York in six months. Uh, so I'm going through my own series of questions about performance right oh, now. Oh, that's interesting. So, so we have a lot to talk. We do. Uh, but but so what what you're <clears throat> describing, what you're asking about right now, is it what aspect of it initially made you ask this question? Is it did it feel confrontational? Did it feel not exactly confrontational? But if you see the uh, form or format of this usual setup, that can be used for political, you know, propaganda. Sure, but yeah. Like, why avant-garde people are doing this exactly same? Participating in the exact same way that everything else does, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if I go too far, that could upset some people. But, you know, what Trump is doing, you know, sure. what happened in, you know, uh, Germany, uh, it, basically the play sort of, you know, setup is the same. It's the same. So my, my reason... I'm sure Jung could speak for himself, but to me, you know, inviting a bunch of people, uh, we, we started inviting Ursula Schera, who is a Swiss visual artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a great artist who does live, sort of, more like a lighting. Mm-hmm. She knows a way to use the space. Yeah, she's pretty incredible. Yeah. So she, we invited her and we did a show at you know, Filney Blocks space, uh-huh. experimental intermedia. And then we invited um, Nana Tsuda, who uh, a dancer, a uh, Japanese dancer. And, I, you know, I, I walk with a uh, choreographer, uh, and, you know, she was one of the you mm. know, crew. And then we are hoping to book another show, either in town or maybe Philly, inviting another person who can do tax and we're asking you know this guy Stu uh, he's a songwriter playwright you know a uh, good friend of mine uh, but anyway so cross pollination is that English yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you know nothing new but to me it's uh, you know exciting it was a new way of working yeah we have yeah. a sort of uh, predetermined structure or, well we call it events uh-huh. right and we use either phone or computer to communicate with each other during the, you know, whatever, let's say, 60 minutes. Then we somebody sent me like a 1A. That's a combination of events. So things can change. Yeah. We are prepared for certain things, but the whole thing will be going to different directions. Uh-huh. And then nice thing about it is it actually like an email's timing of emails or texts can be pretty sluggish. Right? So Sometimes you're emailing each other on stage? Right. So everybody gets emails slightly <laughs> off. So the the, 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 the small thing part uh-huh. takes a little time, which is actually my favorite part. So this is sort of like, like uh, introducing chance operations. Controlled, but yeah. Controlled, but yeah, but there's yeah. some... We know that's, I guess, partly where John is coming from. Right? Yeah. He walked with Cage and... Right. Know, uh, Moss Cunningham Company. So that there's a, that was brought in. But when, when was this that you guys started doing this? Well, that's a good question. It took a while for us to finish one record that is on Bandcamp. Uh, if you look into John King's, you know, page, it's there. And then that be- we did a show or workshop at Bates College. 
And then from there, we start talking about maybe we can do different things. That was when we kind of, you know, came up with this sort of mm -hmm. way of doing stuff, which is nothing new. I think a lot of people do that. Uh, but to me, you know, uh, walking with people that I love and using space in a different way from usual face-to-face mm -hmm. <laughs> -face, uh, makes me, I guess, more comfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't have any problem, you know, performing for other people, but bringing in my own music, then facing my audience, sort of like, uh, you know, nah, I don't know. This is something that we we gotta sit down and talk. Okay, so let's let's talk about this. So this question first <clears throat> presented itself to you in uh, what period of time we're talking? Fifteen years ago. Like when did you first start addressing this idea of questioning? I, I think I like you know going back to my background because I didn't have experience going out. You know, like a Chris Cochran was telling me he used to you know when he was kid, he used to go to see you know classical music mm -hmm. or whatever, right? So that would affect on anybody. Sure, right? but I didn't have that. I mean, most of us in the United States who grow up loving music like it's very easy to go out and see concerts all the time wherever you live right, right for the most part right um so you know i started going to concerts as, right. as a little kid yeah um i you know i attended some concerts in japan uh, in tokyo you know i was consciously you know going to some certain place but i think in a way that didn't really change my thought or I guess, you know, going back to my isolated background, right? So I'm a little bit of damaged goods. <laughs> you know, uh, what can I say? Right. I'm still recovering, you know, trying to be social. But it's a, th this, this thing that you're talking about, uh, is it strictly about the audience or do you also feel this, um, do, do you question what it is to communicate with other musicians and does that feel... Communicate... Communicating with other musicians is not a problem at all. It's a joy. I'm very comfortable. Yeah, I yeah. enjoy that. You know. Yeah. Uh, but almost like a you know why audience uh, sitting and listening? Well, I guess something to look at and listen. I mean, I do understand. Actually, live performance is much more dynamic. Yeah. But at the same time, we don't have that many good sounding venues. Sure don't. That, I, I guess I'm hypersensitive to sound. So that actually kind of, I, I guess I must clarify, I'm more uncomfortable as an audience. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're walking hard. I, I'm not one of them, but, you know, they're sweating and I'm just sitting around and sometimes I get frustrated because what they're doing really is not translating if the system mm -hmm. or room doesn't sound that great. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I get, actually I feel a little more disconnection between what they're trying to do. I, I do appreciate more small, you know, uh, space and, mm -hmm. you know, intimate situation, less uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah? But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, as opposed to, I mean, as just as someone who enjoys music, I... I don't know the last time I did, you know, some, everyone, every few years I'll end up at some concert that's, you know, thousands of people in the audience and I get literally nothing from it. I have, you know, just because you're so disconnected from the music. Mm. So like, like similar to you, you know, if I go to a small room, you know, that holds 50 people, I have much more of a, an experience with the music. Right, 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 right. But there I become more aware of the fact that like 
oh, this person sitting five feet from me is busting their ass, having this really vulnerable moment, and I'm drinking a beer. It, that aspect is a little weird to me. And some people can handle it. You know, for example, my friend Stu, who he's a really great performer. He can talk to people, yeah. you know, uh, in any situations, right? So he's very talented. Uh, but really, you know, going back to my social sort of situation that where, you know, when I was growing up. So I guess I'm not really uh, refusing, but good to investigate and try out some different things, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think I would change my mind about, you know, or I, I don't think I would be completely, will be completely comfortable going out and listen to live performance. So you don't go out much to hear music? Uh, I, I do sometimes, uh, but I can't say, you know, that's my priority. Right. I mean, I, I do, you know, appreciate right. people's effort. Right. Uh, and I, I love some certain things. Amazing, right? Sure. But then, you know, more often than going out to see somebody else's performance, I just play gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's just, I guess, laziness too. But anyways, um, so that's, you know, John, right? So who else I... Uh, and uh, James Faye, you know James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys do the electronics duo. Yes. Uh, we're playing next month at Phil's place. Mm-hmm. So you should come over. Definitely. Uh, we'll make you feel very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but w- with James, we kind of use space in a different way. Yeah. You know, we, not, not much to look at, right? You can look at our gear and stuff, but more like, you know, using full channels or whatever yeah. we want to use. And, we, you know, he's so knowledgeable about electronics and the history of all you know electroacoustic yeah, music he's a true scholar yeah uh and i'm coming from a completely different direction but we get along really well yeah we're friends uh and we've been working together since early 2000s i can't remember two yeah i met him maybe in late 90s in europe mm-hmm. uh i think we met because of uh, nick collins he introduced us. You know Nick? I don't know Nick. Nick Las Collins used to live here and he is a composer but also he built his own system. He 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 studied with Alvin Lucier. Okay. So you know that's the connection between sure. James and uh, Nick. And I used to work with Nick. Uh he used to be a director at Stein in Amsterdam. Okay. And uh, I think actually, actually, I met Nick in Japan when Otomo played with Christian Markley and Nick and Jazzy Joyce, the DJ. Okay. But anyways, that was early '90s. So, anyways, uh, Nick introduced me to James, and we, you know, we started playing. So that's another project that I've been, you know, on and off doing. <clears throat> and who else? But so, uh, and when did uh, so Death Ambient? Right. Was the trio with you? Ikoe Mori and Fred Frith. Right. And that was the, you put that band together, right? Well, initially I had, you know, I wanted to do, do it, you know, dual project with Ikoe. And John actually suggested, how about, you know, inviting Fred? Yeah. And uh, I think he was already, you know, living in, maybe he was still living in Europe. I can't remember. But we, you know, uh, basically that was the beginning of Zadik. Right. Uh, 95, six. Yeah. Really early one. And, uh, so we got a lot of attention, and you know, Laswell let us use his studio in Greenpoint. 
Okay, that's where you made the first record. Right. Yeah. And uh, Bob Musso, you know, recorded and mixed. Uh, I, ha I have a copy for you. Oh, great. Uh, and then... Uh, but did that, that went on. You know, we made three records and... Did, that, did you tour much with that band? Not much. We performed maybe twice with Fred. That's and it. that's when, uh, actually, he couldn't do the Zadig tour. Fred couldn't do it. So uh, John brought in uh, Jim Plotkin. Oh, man. Right? Uh, so we toured with Jim. And the trio was you, James Plotkin, and Nikoi. Yeah. That's so, killing. So that was another configuration. And there uh, is some somewhere, uh, BBC recorded it, and I might have a cassette tape. Yeah. BBC is kind of you know, known to... They don't release the recordings, right? Right. Uh, I don't know what it is, but anyway, anyway, somebody, some friend of Jim recorded it on cassette from radio, so I have it somewhere. But anyways, uh, we went on, made three records, and the last one called uh, "Drunken Forest" was pretty much my idea. Yeah, that's I have that record, oh, great. and it's my. I haven't listened to it in a while. My memory of it is lots of overdubs and you playing lots of instruments, right? Banjo. Right, uh, violin, right, 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 um, and it's just this really like tactile listening experience. Like right, you almost right, feel right, like right. you're touching the sound. Yeah, that making that record really changed my, you know, I, I think I was getting a little more, you know, instruments and tools. That making that record changed your the approach process, yeah, of record making. Yeah, I guess because again, I was able to do that because it became, you know, technology became available instruments became available this was like a before really early you know on 2000s yeah so what you you and fred and ikaway improvised we went to studio in uh oakland or Berkeley, right mm -hmm. and uh miles boyson who recorded the initial track and we were not really happy about the results so you know we didn't know what to do then, you know, basically I took it over and, you know. You said, I'll finish this yeah. record. I'll yeah. configure it in a way that. Right, right, right. So I kind of, you know, took it over and finished it. I think, I mean, that's uh, basically the way I make all my records uh -huh. um, now and for the last several years is right, right. starting with an improv session, maybe discussing some ideas, maybe having some things written uh -huh. out, and then spending however long I need to spend. Well, I was listening to your music on Bandcamp this morning and you did, uh, you know, work with... Brian Chase. Yeah, yeah, we've made, Brian and I have made several records. So together. that's also that's the way you walk. Yeah, we're actually. I just I just tracked him recently overdubbing some drums on a project of mine at his new studio in his house. Right, 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 right. Um, and that's yeah, you know the I'll keep shaping it and reshaping it, you right, know, right, in right, Pro right. Tools until it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. We were, we were talking about doing something with Jim at some point. With I mean, Jim Plotkin. I would love that. You know, that would be kind of a... Have you kept in touch with him? No, where is he? He lives in Pennsylvania. Oh. He He's uh, mastered he, several right, of my right, records. He, he's doing a lot of mastering. Yeah. Uh, but then he was posting something on Facebook, and it, that was like his thing, like really... That's what, know, I'm pretty sure that's how he's earning his Ferocious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know... Besides doing engineering stuff, he's still doing his thing, you know. Yeah, I I've we never could, heard something um, from him that I didn't like. We can track him down. Yeah, I have his email. I was actually I need to email him about something anyway. Right, right, right. Yeah, but anyways, anyways, anyways. So what else am I doing? And just uh, 
And what about, like, you were doing, um, like, what was the band, uh, Dying Ground, with Evan Kang and Calvin Weston? Yeah, Calvin and I are still in touch. I, I play with him at the Stone in September. Uh -huh. when he had a residence. And then I invited him to a uh, uh, sort of mini tour uh, upstate. And that was an improvised situation. And, you know, we, we get along really well. We're like a brothers from another planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a, He's like one of the most intense <clears throat> drummers ever. Right. Yeah. But we uh, we have a kind of space, head space, where we can totally be free. Yeah. And we somehow, we, we were coming from a completely different background. You know, I, I hang out with Kelvin, and he was telling me how he started playing music. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, and how he got into you know on its band and stuff. But uh, I'm still in touch with him, and I uh, I have a record on Bandcamp. I have a project uh, that I did with Kelvin and uh, Charlie Bon, you know, Bonham, oh, wow. and uh, Brigan Krauss. Okay, uh, it's called Tremolo of Joy. Tremolo of Joy. Yeah, that's a kind of uh, composition. Uh -huh. Sorry, um, that I you know it's another sort of typical thing stylistically totally inconsistent right i did some you know <laughs> Wait, inconsistent stuff. with the rest of your output or with itself well to me the sound is everything yeah also the idea <laughs> is everything so in a way it's kind of like a filmmaker mm -hmm. you know they do make completely different things right mm -hmm. uh so tremble joy was based on you know native americans you know stories yeah and i feel you know somewhat close to them because they some of them look like like you? Yeah. Dude <laughs> from my high school. Yeah. Right? Uh, but anyways, uh, so I did that. And I'm just about finishing up my song project called Plastic Spoon. Who's that with? Uh, Karen Mantler, mm -hmm. uh, Doug Wilsman, and Shazar Ismaili. It's a great band. Yeah. And I, again, kind of like Death Ambient, I tracked with them mm -hmm. in a different configuration. But songs. Yeah, so I wrote songs, lyrics, and everything, based, mostly based on you know social economic thing. But this it was a pretty much a departure from avant-garde stuff. It's a pop music. Like what I wanted to do was like a sort of mini wrecking crew kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like a house band. More mm, sort of technically, textually more complex, but right. music is really simple. Right. You know what I mean? Back yeah. then, well, they had to mix in mono, so the way they had to deal with arrangement was that you had to deal with, you know, frequency spectrum. Mm -hmm. Also, if you listen to, like, a Motown music, uh, two guitar players are playing one part. Mm -hmm. That sounds like one part. Like, somebody's just doing, but, you know, like a really simple thing, the backbeat stuff. But if you really listen to it, Two people are doing that. Yeah. Sounds like a little, you know, short delay or something. One yeah, guy yeah. is playing Gibson on low end. Telly, you know, the guy is up, uh, you know, resistor. So that, this is sort of, you know, coming from my ex experimental nature. And mono thing is really fascinating. Mixing it in mono. Yeah. and But, you know, this is a typical uh, situation for me to get into extremely impractical project that takes a long time 
Wait, wait, wait. So what's the idea of doing it all in mono? Just like sort of in inspired by recordings well, from the 50s and 60s? Inspired by, actually, the you know, uh, I, I started walking with Gary Mantler, and I, I'm, I did a session for her, uh, and that was for uh, e- e- EMI. Mm. French EMI, and you know she has some budget, so she hired a bunch of people, including uh, Arturo Fell, oh, wow. the piano player, yeah, right? yeah, and you know Bernstein and all those guys. Legends. And Michael Evans was playing bass, and uh, Hiram Brock, do you know guitar no. player who used to do a lot of uh, session work, like a Chaka Khan. Okay. <laughs> oh shit. Okay. You know, like a yeah. serious guy. Uh, but anyways, Arturo and I were walking on some project in his you know studio and uh one of the uh musicians was uh andy gonzalez mm. and he's one of the you know most important latin bassist yeah right and he had a more like father and son relationship with cachao cachao lopez yeah so every time cachao came over mm. uh and he would sit in like SLBs or whatever right so I got exposed to Latin music and I didn't really ask Andy to teach me bass but I learned some sort of art you know that what he does as a bass player basically crosses the bar right he pulls one note is always longer than the other Mm mm-hmm and very unique way to construct a bass or groove. You know, you can I, I can identify his playing if somebody's playing on the radio. But anyways, he and I was talking, you know, well, talking about um, music and bass, and he we agreed on, you know what, mono recording on 78 RPM records, that's the best stuff <laughs> for bass. Yeah. That, some serious stuff goes on, and I got into that stuff, right? And then start thinking about, hmm, what's the difference? First of all, they play together, mm-hmm. right? Everybody played together. Mm-hmm. And I think Duke Ellington was one of the first guys who started using microphone on bass or put the bass player in front. Right. Because it's quiet. <clears throat> but anyways, uh, ba- as a bass player, usually t- people put bass in the center mm-hmm. unless you're mixing you know, Beatles in stereo. Right. So you could still do that, but um, and there's no phase issues, you know, be- between left and right. You can walk around the room, pretty much the same, you know. Uh, so I got into mono uh, sound, and then, of course, I got into trouble finding out how you I could do it. Arrangement is different, you know. But luckily, I had a very simple, you know, songs. Yeah, and uh, the were so many places that I can, you know, very similar to what I did to the Ambient record. Mm-hmm. Again, stylistically completely inconsistent, but in my mind, it was all about sound, right? Yeah. So this one it goes back to like a you know, whatever I got from, you know, Yoko's influence mm-hmm. or, or even chess record stuff, right? Bass sound and drum sound, and so I used drum. Uh, a microphone for, you know, uh, drums quite far away. That's what they used to do. That's what they did, yeah. I mean, they you, another thing they had was like, uh, you know, chamber. Yeah. Right? But other than that, you just use microphones and room. 
And luckily, I have the, you know, room, uh, enough space to get that sound of space. Even like a recording bass, I, you know, put the microphone quite far away from mm-hmm. bass amp so that you get uh, the sound that they used to try and achieve. Yeah. Back in 50s, 60s, bass guitar was still kind of a new thing. So yeah. they were trying to mimic upright, right? Right. So engineers were still like adding reverbs and stuff. Which is weird on a bass, yeah. Uh, so I think that was McCartney who hated it, the mm-hmm. you know, reverb on bass. So I guess Jeff Emmerich did that, you know, miking, right? Yeah. Far away from the, the bass amp, but still kind of like, a, you know, it, the bass sits in the back. Right. But not, you know, blur. Right. Still, you really hear it. It kind of, if you don't think about it, you don't notice, but it's actually far away. Yeah. So sort of what engineers call a field of depth. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I really got into it and uh, took more than 10 years. Ten years. I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm, you know, much worse than anybody else probably. 10 years. For eight songs. Is it done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, just, I just finished it. Is it available yeah. for people to hear? Th- that's another challenge that I, be, I'm, I'm actually... I promise you, I'm focusing on releasing stuff that I should be releasing online. I just you like, are so much better than I am. I'm not. I mean, you know, I, you know, people ask me what, you know, what, what sort of stuff I do, and almost impossible to explain what I do in five seconds, right? I mean, how long we've we been talking? An hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, really, kind of hard to figure me out for right. Basically, I'm still trying to figure out yeah. myself. So yeah, it's yeah, harder yeah. for other people. So the only solution is just whatever, put it together. You know, put, put everything on the table, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put out some uh, very obscure stuff that I did, you know, including this song project, which is almost, I think, pieces off some, you know, people because it's very catchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm playing this sort of... Uh, Using having Karen Mantler singing a song as a man. Oh, you know, that's one thing I do. Most of, not everything, but uh, basically she's playing the third person, right? Third that's person. that's yeah. the way I, you know, conceptualize it. Yeah, conceptualize most of the part. And the song called "I Am a Man." It's you know based on a post, uh, civil rights movement photographer. Ernest Withers, who, when he passed away, they found out that he was a FBI informant. Mm. And of course, you know, FBI knew how desperate he was. Yeah. So this is not about him, you know, portraying him as a bad person, a good person, but something else. A complex person. Yeah, but he needed the money because he had many kids and so on. And people still love him. Yeah. Right. So when you songwriting, you know, especially a lot of avant-garde people think, you know, songwriting easy, you know, you're doing for money or whatever, but it is in my mind it's a multimedia project. Absolutely. You can use, you know, lyrics and, you know, the way you actually use singers or sounds. It's, you know, a, a limitless. Uh but anyways, so uh Karen sings as a man and I am a man is the famous photography. Yeah. 
he took of you know walk of we of human beings. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's a complex uh, story. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, again, the story itself and conceptualizing how to do this thing is another thing. But also, sonically, I had I wanted to do you know the way I wanted to do, and I ended up mixing on tape. Mm. And when you come over to my place, you see how bad I am. Uh, <laughs> I build stuff. Build. Yeah. So yeah. You, you know, when I, when I walk on less so right now because I have a lot of things already done but uh, you know Tremolo Joy you know I actually built a microphone preamp for, you know preamps mm. for that because I needed location rig right mm-hmm. I didn't have so well I can't buy it but you know I can't afford to buy a 10 channel system but you built it I, yeah <laughs> but I didn't really you know know what how to do it until I met my friend JC Morrison who is a audio Hi-Fi audio designer. Okay. And he's specializing mostly tube, you know, valve tube design. He also, you know, uh, does hybrid design as well. But anyways, he you know, I are uh, really good friends. And he generously, you know, uh, showed me how to read schematics. It's like a music, right? Yeah. And write mu- uh, uh, schematics and also how to use power tools safely. Because people really, you know, you can really pretty yeah. hurt yourself. <laughs> so he had a, you know, uh, shop and, you know, he let me use tools. Um, initially, he built me a mic preamp for, you know, specifically ribbon mic. And then I wanted a mixer to basically, you know, tube summing box. Mm. And he said, I, you know, you, you got to do it. I'll show you how to do it, but you do it. And took two years to for me to be able to mix and this it. this is the mixer you use I guess I the use for, centerpiece yeah, of your studio yeah anyways uh, so I made built mixer I built EQ but all you know JC helped me design yeah. it and I had you know he early on he was showing me how to lay out things but I eventually I kind of got better at I'm really handy I'm good with hands uh-huh. I have a better hands than brain uh-huh. and I'm slow <laughs> but I, I can I managed to build a lot of things? Yeah. So I built, you know, mixer, EQ, power amp, and this and is the stuff that's powering your studio. This is the these are your main tools for mixing mm, and making records. I I use my tools as well as some vintage equipment. Yeah. That's when James comes in because he's like a super knowledgeable about American or you know some British James equipment. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Jim James Fay. James Fay, right, 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 right. So he, you know, knows a lot of things, and also he's very smart about finding things very cheap. Yeah. And back in maybe. Well, he's an electrical engineer by by education. He, he, yeah. He, he went to Princeton. Yeah. Right. So he's, you know, he knows a lot of things. So he told me, you know, for example, Art Davis, the guy, famous, you know, engineer, designed a lot of things for different companies, uh-huh. but. If the brand, you know, uh, brand name is different, price could be high or low. But back then, I could get, or he could find me something for hundred fifty bucks, hundred bucks for you know, unbelievable stuff. Really? Because American equipment now maybe catching up a little bit, but people like Neve, you know, British stuff. American people like British stuff. Yeah. British people like American stuff. Right. Japanese guys don't care about it. So <laughs> I'm trying to find the crack, right? Yeah. Something that nobody wants, but really. High quality. That's a skill. 
well, knowing again, where to find choice. it. You know, I, I don't you know. I, I, I had a money to blow. I might buy anything, but uh, and microphones. I got you know old Sony tube mics. Okay, you're not building the mics. Not yet, yet. <laughs> unless I you know I I need more. Uh, but and I built power amps, so that's about it. So configuration is vintage American stuff and home you know sort of home built yeah well i gotta come check your studio diy stuff but you know come jc coming from hi-fi background it's really you know quality is high yeah but my system overall it's like a 1950s early 60s kind of thing because most of the stuff is tube yeah and in between i do use you know uh solid state you know components yeah yeah, yeah. uh and you know tube compressor jc design i have and uh, also because i'm doing this and i'm handy you know f being able to fix things people start giving me things oh i can't use this anymore do you want it kind right, of thing? I'm moving, right. so do you want my tape machine and my friend ed tomney who is a film composer mm -hmm. he also did uh i think he worked on our brown release on oh. zadek part of it you know? yeah 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 anyways he's a good friend of mine and he moved out of his you know loft and he gave it uh he gave me a, a revox tape machine so i started using it so you know again accident right mm -hmm. i didn't really think i need it but oh okay i can fix that or maintain it mm -hmm. so align it and you know start learning how much signal you can push and so on and again, James can help on you know, yeah. this kind of stuff too. So, and another person, sort of like I make friends with people, and they become you know like a, almost like a mentors. Another uh, friend mentor is named uh, Takeshi Kawana, who is a master repair guy in New York or in Japan. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. he he goes back and forth, but he he does freelance work a lot, but also he goes to. Uh, main drag okay right and he walks for everybody Rebo yeah Rich Sakamoto you know people you know he, yeah, yeah. people need him <laughs> yeah 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 they, they rely on him yeah. but anyways he knows what uh, he knows how to avoid problems right because he's coming from exactly opposite from JC JC is all about in, inventive ideas right mm -hmm. but Takeshi is coming from reliability and how to fix it right so uh, he's the one who can help me if I have a real problem. But then, you know, they moved, uh, Takeshi was in Japan for a long time, and JC moved to Sweden, James moved to West Coast, and at that point, I had to figure out everything, and actually, that's when I really learned it, because I, they're not there, <laughs> and they're not here anymore, right? right? <clears throat> so... I learned the lessons in a hard way, but I'm glad I did it because in the end, what I do sounds very different from anybody else. It sounds like what you want it to sound Good or bad, like. you know. Good or bad. <laughs> I mean, it, it's maybe sounds old, sounds a little wet, wetter. Mm -hmm. The new recordings that I hear is dry, right? So decay is much shorter. Yeah. According to my ear. Um Tube stuff is interesting because it's almost like a mimicking 
to a vibration, you know, propagation in the air. Because there's nothing in, in I mean, they call a valve tube, uh, electron flies between two different plates. Solid state stuff, you, you have to send a signal, and that signal hits the material. So, you know, it's a different behavior. It sound, it's, whatever you do changes the sound, and you just choose which one you, you know, like or more suitable. Yeah. So I do use some solid state stuff. Uh, but anyways, um, so I think I'm slow because I'm... Well, you're exploring uh, along the way. All over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Are you right, still... So it's like a... <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous, right? Like a, it's, it's, no, it's super it's... impractical. It takes perhaps, time to perhaps, build but, stuff. And... But if that's the way you need to do it, that's the way you need to do it. Right. But, but you know, uh, then I became engineer. Well, my dad was engineer, so I may have had some, you know, it's in your blood DNA, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right? So I'm born into, the, born to be geek, I guess. Uh, Are you still touring much? No, I'm. My economy is really based in New York City now. Yeah. And I teach. And where I, you teach? You're just privately. I teach at NYU. Uh, they have a Brooklyn campus now. Uh huh. So our section is called NYU Tandem, and we have a inter integrated digital media okay. program, and you know, we have. Uh, I guess we have game design, visual stuff, and audio. That's what you're doing. Audio. Yeah. Do you know Luke Dubois? I know the name. Yeah, he's the director. Okay. And another uh, professor is Michael Schumacher. Uh huh. So three of us, you know. Okay. That. And I'm teaching sound design right now, and uh, sort of you know extension. Basically, I, I I can't believe it. I'm showing you know what I like, and that's amazing. Yeah, I think it's good for kids because I'm really excited about what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, you know, now we have a modular synth in in our classroom. And, uh, you know, I was, I just finished, another thing I finished last year was uh, film music for a documentary film called The Journey of Mona Lisa. And about the painting <clears throat> being recovered? No, Journey of Mona Lisa is a uh, first film by this Chilean director named uh, Nicole Costa. Mm -hmm. And this is a story uh, about uh, an artist, theater, I guess he's a playwright, theater director, and poet, writer, came to New York City and became a sex worker. Hmm. And they were not in touch with, they went to school together in uh, I guess Santiago and they got out of touch and later on she found out what she, you know what he was doing so there's a transformation between you know man and woman she, mm -hmm. you know she, he, uh, Mona Lisa is the name when he transforms mm -hmm. as a transvestite you know a sex worker <clears throat> but at the same time there is a transformation being an artist and being sex worker, right? So there, there's sort of at least two things going on here. And uh, I start working on it, and this is sort of approach that certain writers would take. If you like songwriting too, like some people say, you know, you have to have some sort of compassion and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think film music 
has to function as a, some sort of bridge, mm-hmm. right? Not explaining something that you already saw. So translating this whole you know story may seem very unique, but at the same time, finding your own own identity is such a common theme, right? A lot of people come to New York City and trying to redefine yourself. So I, you know, I was trying to think about so you know what's going on and you know. And sort of zoom out and give some sound. Mm. Right. So some parts are just textures. Yeah. And that is the entrance. And if we, you know, re- melodies or rhythm or anything that's required, I would just do it. So uh, having done like a death ambient or any, you know, sound stuff for a long time really helped. It seems like nowadays uh, when people hire, when filmmakers hire composers, the expectation is they're also getting sound design. Pretty much. Like or, you really have to have of, that you be know, part of your skill set. Uh, it, it's almost... Um, <clears throat> used to be, even like a 70s, you know, like a, I was uh, playing uh, Eraserhead in class. Uh, Alan Split, mm-hmm. you know, great sound designer. Back then, it's still kind of sound design was sound design, and, you know, Lynch used music. Now it's kind of a all mixed. Yeah. Right? So starting from texture that becomes music. Yeah. Something that ends up happening sometimes in this world is, to me, I've always loved soundtrack music. Most, a lot of the time I'm listening to music, I'm listening to soundtracks. Yeah. As an isolated listening experience, I don't hear as many good soundtracks now as from the past. Uh Like I'd still, just as a, purely as a listener, divorced from the film, Right. I'd rather listen to Bernard Herrmann 10 times out of 10, uh, you know, versus some kind of contemporary score where it's a lot of drones and stuff. That being said, in the films, when you're watching them, having these these textures and these drones, like it totally kicks the film up to a next level. It's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. place that it's at now that, right, right. you know? So it's a really interesting, I think it took like a hundred years for a lot of people to realize that, or you know, the influence finally arrived from... You know, basically what we do coming from, you know, Dada or whatever, you know, yeah. 1910s. Uh, that was sort of answer to 19th century's culture, right? Right. So we finally kind of, not really clear, but we kind of soaked in all those things. You know, I mean, in the 60s, Beatles were doing kind of Stockhausen-ish stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, consciously, but now... Everybody's kind of a uh, you know used to the sounds. Yeah, we you know un- unusual sounds. That's or, maybe what we started talking about. I think when the neighbors hear me playing drones <clears throat> right. or weird you know percussive sounds, maybe it's not so foreign as it once was. Also, subliminal way of using sound, and oh, you know, I, I guess Lynch opened the uh, you know door for yeah. a lot of people to to do some weird abstract dark stuff, things. Yeah. Uh, so, so he contributed to that. But anyways, uh, to me, having, you know, experiences of uh, uh, experimental stuff, although experimental may be the term, wrong term, but sound stuff, underground stuff, uh, and doing stuff like a music library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all part of the So I can, you know, come up with melodies or whatever, mm-hmm. uh you know fairly easily so you know uh mixing everything together 
and you know worked for uh, this choreographer Take Uyayama. We did so far maybe three pieces, and some of them are, I think, two on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, one piece is about you know basically life and death, and uh, uh, I lost. Uh, my father and dog in a sort of maybe two years apart. So, you know, I had to kind of like process that thing. And uh, I got a residency in uh, California, uh, this place, uh, organization called Headlands. Yeah. Brian went there. Brian too. went, yeah. I mean, anyways, we, you know, I was given this huge space. Uh, it was called Waiting Room, you know. Mm-hmm. The soldiers were waiting, you know, yeah, in yeah, case yeah. Russians would attack us. But anyways, maybe 40 by 80, you know, feet, a gigantic room. And, you know, I, I had a one month. And the director at the time was my friend Brian Carl, And he gave me, you know, stuff like, do you, do you want a drum set? And I intentionally decided not to bring the stuff I usually play. Mm. Totally, total blank, right? Mm-hmm. So I was doing like a few of the recordings and, you know, then I started experimenting with drums one by one. I'm not a good set player, but I, you know, mm-hmm. I can do percussion stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I started recording drums one by one, and that was the almost only occasion that I could actually geek out on microphone distance. Yeah. Right. So if you can uh, figure out what the delay time, if you place the microphone like a 25 feet from me, from the drums, sure, you, you set the two mics to capture the delay times so yeah so anyways i uh recorded one piece with just drums and some you know uh drum and that ended up with uh one you know one of the section for this dance piece and ended up you know the theme was life and death hey <laughs> why not this timing was right <laughs> right so you know uh, that was when i got into drumming a little bit yeah and of course, I got in deeper, and you know, I got obsessed with like a snare and tunings and stuff. And uh, drone part, I've been working with this idea. I have a copy of this uh, CD that I made in the '90s uh, called "Turbulent Zone." Yeah, and that was uh, received fairly, uh, pretty poorly. Three people on this planet loved it. You know all three of them? Uh, James loved it. Uh-huh. And Nuno Rebello, who is a guitar player, improviser, composer. In, uh, now he lives in Spain. And another person you know, loved it. But anyway, overwhelmingly, people <clears throat> disliked it? I think people didn't get it. Uh-huh. Uh, but you, I used a prime number tuning that I, you know, came up with. And uh, I'm, I'm just dividing uh, string length in the most uh, useful one is in seven, right? So you, you plus, uh, you know, uh, whatever, six divided by seven, and then tune the next one down to that pitch. Mm-hmm. And that interval is like a little lower than minor third. And it has a beautiful dark sound. It's like a beat, right? Especially mm-hmm. because the frequency is low. And I can bow it, you know. So this is still, you know, you get natural harmonics because, you know, you're still playing, you know, uh, strings. So I, that was my uh, first 
attempt to do stuff, you know, by using this, you know, numbers. Uh, actually, only other person who was impressed by this was my dad, who was <laughs> engineer, right? So, oh, you use prime numbers, and he was playing. Uh, it worked for him, yeah. Actually, I was with James. We were touring in Japan, and my dad was, you know, driving, and he was like cranking up this weird music. And son, you use prime numbers. That's great. <laughs> you know, so very, very, you know. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, f- maybe four people appreciate it. <laughs> okay, so four. But <laughs> uh, and that's something that you will be yeah. forced to listen well, to. I can't wait to hear that. But I, I, I'm thinking of maybe remaster it and put on Bandcamp or yeah. whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. right next to the song project, which makes no sense. Well, no, it does. It does. But anyways, uh, now I'm expanding a little bit, you know, using uh, prime numbers, but I can use synthesizers, right? I use, you know, modular synthesis. So I could use prime numbers... Like using, you know, max MSB and generate some control voltage that has a relationship. Mm-hmm. Then maybe I can uh, vibrate the bass or something, you know what I mean? Something, it doesn't yeah. have to be anything that is in audio rate right. or obvious. <clears throat> so there are some ideas, you know, that that's what I'm working on. But when I do drones, especially when I play with James, yeah, if I do this tuning... I could avoid the usual, you know... The cliches. Yeah, you know, because I, I play with a bunch of improvisers and sometimes I hear E minor, 7. Why now? Why, why, what, what, what's up with that? So I want it to be... Because I'm a bass player. Yeah. If I play E, that supports the whole harmony, right? And I wanted to get away from that role. Yeah. And I can do it because I'm alone. Yeah. Right? Or when I do texture I mean, stuff you know. with other guys like James... Faye, you know, I, I'm free to do anything. It yeah. doesn't matter if you have, you know. But true improvisation, I think <clears> you have to have that aspect of it, is putting yourself in a situation where you are pushed outside of your comfort zone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Told, I mean, in my yeah. case, it was way out. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, you know, I understand people got kind of like, what the hell is this? It's, yeah. But, you know, that's the sort of... You, that's the road. I'm again. I'm. I don't grow up. I guess. Like I do what I want to do. Yeah. And I'm not trying to, you know, uh, have a bad attitude. But to be honest with you, just just between you and me, which and whoever's listening, <laughs> uh-huh. I don't really care about what people think. So right. If some people like it, people like it. You know, if they don't like it, go this to the next door. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's fine. I, I have no... I think that's healthy. I think that's about. the way that... Yeah. But then, I, you know, this is uh, something that I kind of share with David Lynch. He's into really dark things and really goofy stuff. Yeah. Side right. by side. Right. So that's, that's actually not a good thing. That could upset some people because yeah. it's like a, too much. Yeah. Right? Almost like you what he's filming especially or TV stuff, you know. Is this horror or comedy? Yeah. You know, that's where, like, a really, you know, yeah, mess yeah, yeah. with you. Yeah. A real punk, you know, would go into that. Yeah. So totally. I, I have that, you know, like a, this, you know, song project, Plastic Spoon. Uh, there are some totally goofy stuff goes on. Yeah. I mean, really. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Dude. And some serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, uh, how are we doing? I think I think we've done good. <laughs> you got enough? I think we've done good. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming over and talking. Yes, thank this you. This has been a joy. Me. Yeah, yeah.
All right. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was my conversation with the great Kato Hideki. Check him out. Go to katohideki.com. Wonderful dude. And that's it. We'll be back next week. Uh, Next week's a good one. Until then, I hope you guys are all doing well. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.